the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Well, good morning, friends. Welcome to week three of Advent. This is the season when we reflect on the coming of Creator God to earth in human form, the baby Jesus. It's also the season when we anticipate the future coming again of Almighty God, King Jesus. Over the past few weeks, we have looked at how Jesus' coming at Christmas was earth-shattering, how it changed everything. Pastor Ben talked about how Adam and Eve's choice in the garden shattered the good gift that God had given humanity, thus the box, the bow, and the shattered glass. But at the same time, it also set in motion a rescue plan and the promise of a true and wonderful counselor. Pastor Chris talked about how Jesus, mighty God, coming as a baby shatters our understanding of power. The manger is the very picture of an all-powerful God who chose meekness. And today, well, today, we are going to talk about first century Jewish marriage practices. You are welcome. (laughs) Let's pray together before we begin. God, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts bring glory to you and you alone. Speak, Lord, we are your servants and we are listening. We want to be more like you, Jesus. Amen. So in the ancient world, Jewish men generally got married around ages 18 to 20, while Jewish women generally got married around ages 12 to 14. I want you to think of a roughly middle school student that you know and a roughly high school student that you know, or maybe you are a middle schooler or a high schooler. Because as we talk about Mary and Joseph, I don't want us to lose sight of how incredibly young these two were. They faced life-altering and, frankly, world-altering decisions and responsibility with a spiritual maturity we typically expect of someone much older. Matthew 1.18 says, This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the first step in a Jewish marriage was the engagement. Now there were no elaborate proposals here, no flash mobs, no skywriting, and no use of the Muppets, which is a thing. No, this was simply a legal contract arranged by family members who decided if the couple might be a good fit. And the bride and groom-to-be were likely not at all involved in this process, just perhaps notified of the decision at family dinner that night. Step two in a Jewish marriage was called the betrothal. And betrothal looks a little more like our modern version of engagement in that it was a one-year period of waiting before the wedding. And during this year, the couple would be known as belonging to each other but not having the rights of living together as husband and wife. The difference between then and now 
is betrothal was much more serious and binding than today's engagements. Remember, it's a legal contract. A betrothal then could only be ended by divorce. And if a man died before the marriage, the woman would actually still be considered a widow by society. Divorce, widow, words that we reserve for married couples today applied to even engaged couples then. Now, because Mary and Joseph were only in that betrothal stage and not yet married, ancient Jewish culture said there were only two human explanations for Mary's unexpected pregnancy. Either she had been unfaithful to Joseph, or Joseph was the father of her baby out of wedlock. And neither option was good. It meant that in the midst of this betrothal time meant to test faithfulness, one or both of them had failed to honor the commitment expected of them. Joseph knew it wasn't his baby. Betrothed couples were not allowed to spend time together pre-wedding, so without much knowledge of Mary's personality or character, he'd have very little reason to trust her claims of innocence. Very little reason to trust that what she said the angel told her was true. So believing that she had been unfaithful, Joseph had a few options under Jewish law. Joseph could have had Mary stoned to death for adultery, although it doesn't seem that was super common at that time. Joseph could have chosen to end the betrothal with a very public divorce trial, shaming Mary. And when he took Mary to court, he could have legally taken away the entirety of her dowry patting his bank account while leaving her with no financial status and few human rights. Joseph also had the legal option of divorcing Mary quietly with just two or three witnesses. Joseph could have chosen any of these options, stoning, public trial, or quiet legal action, and walked away with his reputation fully intact. If Joseph chose to divorce her, This incident with Mary would cost him nothing and could even benefit him. If he chose not to divorce her, however, the cost would be steep. If Joseph married her, people would assume that he was the one who had gotten Mary pregnant before the marriage. And then Joseph, too, would become an object of shame in a culture dominated by the value of honor And that shame would extend to his whole family as well. Jewish and Roman law both demanded that a a man divorce his wife if she was guilty or even suspected of adultery. And if he didn't, it was seen as more than just an admission of guilt. His reputation would be dragged through the mud and all sorts of ugly things would be assumed about him. But before we start to judge these cultural practices of the time. Let's remember that we too have a whole lot of rules and expectations for how and when things are supposed to come about in a person's life. Granted, no stoning involved, but still pretty limiting. For example, by the time you reach hmm, junior year of high school, the questions begin. What do you want to study? Where do you want to go to college? The assumption being that everyone will, can, and should go to college. And when you graduate from college, assuming you've checked that good job box, people move on to the next question. When are you getting married? 
And generally, you have a couple years before that question starts to take on a more concerned tone. But the questions continue once you're married. When are you going to have a kid? When are you going to have a house? When are you going to have another kid? And the, the askers of these usually well-meaning questions, consciously or not, all have in mind some kind of appropriate timeline or pathway for these things coming about. To take an unexpected detour or a different path altogether will invoke some concerned whispers, or at the very least, a head tilt of surprise. The many assumptions being that everyone will, can, and should get married and have kids because these, along with our occupations, are how we define success. It's how we identify ourselves to each other. And Mary and Joseph's world was no different. Identity and success were largely determined by your marriage and your children. They determined your standing in the community. And the circumstances surrounding both Mary and Joseph's marriage and their firstborn child were significantly suspect, not at all in line with cultural expectations. So the whispers of scandal would follow Mary and Joseph for their entire lives. This is the cultural and social pressure that Joseph is facing. These are the factors that he's weighing as he plans his next steps. Knowing all of this, the gospel writer's next statement is our first indicator that Joseph's character is a cut above the rest. Joseph was a righteous man, or faithful to the law, and yet did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to divorce her quietly. Joseph is called righteous not for not divorcing Mary, but for intending to divorce her quietly. He knew great suffering already awaited her. There was little chance that she would ever marry, which was a terrible fate in this economically male-centered culture where a woman could only aspire to success and even security by becoming a wife and a mother. Justice in his culture called for Joseph to divorce Mary. Joseph's compassion caused him to want to do so with mercy, not desiring to heap more pain upon her inevitable suffering with a public trial. Already, Joseph demonstrates this great spiritual maturity, which has shaped in him a character with the strength to act according to his faith and not culture's definition of success. And this foundation of openness to God is what prepared Joseph for an unexpected ask. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will have a son and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until her son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. 
So Joseph chooses the most costly option to himself. He marries Mary. But Joseph's yes to God is far more than a one-time deal. He's given many more opportunities to respond to God with obedience. Not only did the angel charge Joseph to marry Mary, he instructed Joseph to name the baby Jesus. Now, naming was the responsibility of the legal father. It officially made the child the man's son and heir. In naming Jesus, Joseph was publicly stating that this child, though not biologically his, was his to raise, love, and most importantly, pass his name on to. The Messiah was prophesied to come from King David's family tree. Joseph was a descendant of David, and now, as a result of Joseph's obedience, so is Jesus. And then following Jesus' birth, Matthew 2 continues, after the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So that night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Let's not race by the fact that our Savior Jesus spent the first couple years of his life as an immigrant seeking asylum with his parents. Or that by saying yes, Joseph became a refugee. Living in this new place, it disrupted Joseph's trade as a carpenter significantly, and thus his ability to provide for his family as his culture expected. His success as a father and a husband further shattered. And again, a few verses later, when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who are trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then, after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee, and the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. Each and every time Joseph says yes to God, it results in the fulfillment of God's plan and promise to his people. We see this man that God selected to parent his son wholeheartedly accepting God's direction at each step and turn. In the life of Joseph, success is shattered and redefined by his simple faith, his readiness to depend on God for his decisions and to consistently do what God instructs. Joseph, he lived with the humility to follow God's lead, and the strength to remain steadfastly faithful, even when it didn't make sense, was uncomfortable, or was just flat out costly. Now I love youth ministry for a whole lot of reasons, and one of them being the way that teens' responses can completely change my perspective on things at times. 
I have this one very vivid memory of a small group discussion a number of years ago. We were talking about God having a plan for each of us. And I asked my group, so how does it make you feel that God has a plan for you? And I expected answers mostly of relief or gratitude, typical things like, I don't know, it's pretty cool, I guess. (laughs) Instead, tears welled up in the eyes of a sixth grade girl who said, it makes me nervous and uncomfortable. How do I know that I'll like his plan? What if he asked me to do something I really don't want to do? Dang. Nailed it. Since then, I have heard that question and that fear expressed from so many people of all ages in so many different ways. I've wrestled with it myself at times. And sometimes our reading of scripture can actually reinforce this fear. Sometimes we think that when God has a plan for our lives, it's it's only going to be this big ask that we say yes to. And these are some of the most famous moments in our Bibles, the one we focus on the most. Noah, Abraham, Moses, Esther, Ruth, Mary, etc. People who said yes to God despite the great cost to themselves. And it's that great cost that scares us. But there's another common fear regarding God's plan for us. It's one that can keep us motionless, paralyzed even in the way we live our lives. Some of us wait until God basically hits us over the head with the big ask, putting it in bright flashing lights so that we can't miss it, fearing that any step we take without that kind of direction from God is a wrong step. We sometimes invest more energy into trying to figure out what God's plan for us is than we actually spend living the life that God has given us. Our Bibles are not just full of the big asks and the big yeses. More pages are full of names of people whose stories we never hear in great detail. Think about people in scripture like Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, or Mordecai, Esther's uncle. Without their encouragement, wisdom, and sometimes flat-out challenge to Moses and Esther, who did receive the big ass, the whole story could have unfolded very differently. We don't read that Jethro or Mordecai ever had any kind of burning bush moment, but rather, when they saw a need or opportunity in front of them, they responded in faith and with character that reflected their relationship with God. Think about Jonah, the guy who really struggled to say yes to God's plan. I'm so grateful that his story is in our Bibles, even if it might be the reason for my irrational fear of whales. But I'm grateful because Jonah's story is a reminder that we don't always have to get it right for God to still work in and through us in the world. Donald Miller, author of many books, including Blue Like Jazz, once said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. This is a common, often uncontested notion among Christians. But what if God doesn't have a specific plan for most of us? What if he invites us to creatively and joyfully create our own story? Culture glorifies the big, 
the exciting, and the dramatic. We don't often celebrate the quiet faithfulness of people who consistently respond to God's leading over time. As pastor and theologian Eugene Peterson would call it, the long obedience in the same direction. Discerning God's plan for our lives is not about knowing the specific school, major, occupation, job, place to live, person to marry, chosen for us, but instead about a posture of open-handed willingness to listen when he speaks and live in a way consistent with his character. If our lives were a coloring book, then the lines God has given us to color within are love God and love people. And the rest, while it's this evolving masterpiece shaped by time spent in relationship with God, growing in his likeness and character, learning to hear, trust, and obey his voice moment by moment, just as Joseph did. Our sermon series for the past few weeks has been centered around Isaiah 9-6. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In the story of Joseph, God provides a reset button. Not because we now hold up Joseph as the new definition of successful fatherhood or manhood, no. In Joseph, we see the human stereotypes and ideals discarded, that success shattered. And instead, a faithful and successful identity, spouse, parent, or anything else, is celebrated as the willingness to say yes when God asks, to be open to his leading. God is the the archetype, the first form, the model from which our understanding of fatherhood and motherhood flows. In Joseph, we see God's character mirrored. Justice shaped by compassion, humility powered by strength, and steadfast faithfulness. In Jesus' earthly father, we catch just a glimpse of the character of our everlasting father. And it's trust in God's character that can help us to say yes to the ask, whether it is world-altering or simply to stay faithful to what is in front of us. When our circumstances bring challenge or cost, trust in God's character is what can bring us joy. Just as the angel spoke to Joseph and Mary, our everlasting father, full of compassion, strength, and faithfulness to us, speaks to all of our fears. Do not be afraid. Pray with me. God, trust does not always come naturally to us. It can be so much easier to allow culture to define our success, our identity, and our path forward. But Father, we don't want to miss out on what you have for us. As we press into our relationship with you, whatever that looks like at this point in our lives, grow in us a steadfast character, an openness to you, that we may be able to say yes to what you place in front of us each moment. Everlasting Father, we want to follow you where you lead 
We want to be a part of your good plan for us and this world. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.